Well, good morning again. My privilege to come before you this morning and open up God's Word. And so, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to talk through a little bit about different religions and countries of origin. You know, many people today still hold to their religion based upon their nationality, uh, where they were born and where they were raised. So, uh, this is generally speaking, British people are Anglicans, Italian people are Catholic, Greek people are Orthodox, Indian people are Hindu, Swedish people are Lutheran, Uh, people in the South are Southern Baptist. So these people feel uh, in some way that their religion is part of their nationality, part of their, their culture. And, and it's the same in some ways to their nationality. It's, it's kind of connected to, to where they're from. So if you were to tell them that they're lost, unless there's something more to that statement, they would feel you're insulting their culture, their, their country, their nationality, more than their religious beliefs. Many of you know that we lived in Sweden, and there, there are people there who would say to us, and we would hear and read, that they were Lutheran atheists. Go ahead and let that sink in. And what they mean is that being Lutheran was part of their cultural identity. To be Swedish meant to be part of the Lutheran church, just as much as lutefisk and meatballs as part of the Christmas meal. And the country boasts at this point of a population just over 10 million people, and 6 million of them are members of the Lutheran church. And yet 18% of the total population believe that there's actually a God. God of the Bible. Less than 4% actually attend church weekly. What we experienced and what we saw firsthand when we were in Sweden was a cultural acceptance to the religious norms of Lutheran and their belief, but there there was a lack of desire for a changed heart. It was a sight to see uh, the public children's school on December 13th gather in the courtyard to celebrate St. Lucia and wear wreaths of candles on their heads to commemorate the light of Christ coming into the world, because they've always done that. And yet, in their life, ignoring Christ who came to die for them. What we saw there most clearly in our short time was a cultural religion. The same sort of cultural religion that Paul is going to tackle in the remaining verses of Romans chapter 2. Paul sees this with the Jews who make up the church in the church in Rome, uh, the, the church in Rome and thus membership. And so there's been these rapid fire shots that Paul is making to, to help them understand themselves in their cultural context. So here's the main idea. Salvation happens in a circumcised heart. That's the main idea. And, and if you're new to our church, you've picked a great sermon to come because I'm going to say the word circumcised probably 90 times here. But this is the target that Paul has as he finishes out this chapter. And really, it's been the target all along in chapter 2, trying to open their eyes to see how they're trusting in everything else except God. And so Paul is going to demolish their cultural religion, seeking to give them Christ as the only way to God. And so as we walk through these last few verses, 
25 through 29, there's two questions that I hope to answer as part of my outline. Point number one, question number one was, what was the point of circumcision? Point number two, question number two, what makes someone a Jew? Okay? We need to remind ourselves how we got here. Uh, when we finish Romans 1, we, come, we, we came at the very end where Paul is, is talking about the world. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about people outside of the church to this church in Rome. And, and then Paul shifts his teaching to what makes the, from the world guilty before God to what makes the culturally religious guilty before God. He turns inward into the church. And what Paul is saying, to be very clear, is both are guilty. Both the non-religious and the religious need salvation. But each group comes to God differently. So after listing the litany of sins that are present in the world in Romans 1, Paul launches into the, the sins of the religious in Romans 2. And so we're going to read the entire chapter to give you the full context. This is what we've covered the last three weeks, and then today we'll finish. So Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May God honor the reading and teaching of his word this morning. So we come to the end of the chapter. Paul summarizes his argument against the Jews by bringing up their most highly prized ritual, circumcision. And he's walked through their propensity to judge Gentiles, their lack of faithfulness to God and his written law. And now, now they come, he comes to the misguided treasure of their covenant duties. And, and what we find here is that Paul has been coming at the same target this whole time throughout the, the chapter. He's just coming at different angles for them to understand the plight that they're in. Now he ends the argument with a topic of circumcision. And this was a significant cultural marker of God's covenant with his people. They would know exactly what he's talking about. We don't talk about circumcision very much. It's not the topic that we think, let's go to church and talk about circumcision. But Jews would understand what he's saying. So point number one, what was the point or goal of circumcision? Although Abraham was circumcised in Genesis 19 at the age of 99, mind you, long before the law of Moses was given in Exodus 20, circumcision would would become a sort of shorthand for what it meant to be a Jew, having a law, what it meant to be following God. And, And God commanded Abraham to be circumcised in Genesis 17, the passage that Trevor read at the beginning of the service, to affirm the covenant that he had established with him. If you remember Genesis, you remember reading through Genesis, Abraham had difficulty following God. That should encourage you, friends. Anyone have difficulty following God? You and Abraham are a lot alike. He had trouble believing what God said, believing that God would actually fulfill what he had promised. And so God introduces circumcision in chapter 17 And circumcision was a ceremony by which a male Jew was brought into the covenant community. Submitting yourself to circumcision meant you were submitting yourself to keep the rest of the law, to follow God. That was the promise you were making. And that you were cut off from the world and brought near to God through faith. But from there, through the history developed in Israel, a foolish belief that circumcision, that sacred rite of, of the Old Testament covenant, was, was all it took to be saved. One uh, rabbi in a tradition writes this, circumcision saves from hell. So he literally took this covenant and just made it all. That was it. You want to be saved? Be circumcised. And many Jewish people believe that those who were circumcised were by definition saved from God's wrath. They believed, they were convinced that it only took circumcision to be sealed in their salvation. It was their magic bullet, so to say, to keep them safe on the day of judgment. And that's the audience that Paul is writing this argument here in Romans 2. 
Now, it's not to say that all believed this lie about circumcision, but enough did to the extent that God, through Paul, is writing this so that they understand what salvation is. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So after Paul has shown how the disobedience of the Jews in the prior verses had voided the law, he will now show that their, their continual sins also voided the law, avoided the value of their own circumcision. That's why Paul says that their circumcision only has value if they're actually going to obey the law, if they're going to follow God. You could hear, possibly, the objections to Paul as he's going through chapter 2. The first section, the second one, he finishes at 24, and you could possibly hear thinking, yeah, yeah, we've done that. We, we haven't perfectly obeyed, but Paul, we're circumcised. And he says in verse 25, yes, circumcision means something only if you're going to obey, if you're going to follow me in obedience and faith. And if you don't, if you refuse, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It has no value whatsoever. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, and I'm not a part of the family, keeps the precepts of the law, obedience to the law, will not his uncircumcision, because he's not a part of the Jewish people, be regarded as circumcision, part of the covenant? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. See, Paul isn't saying that Gentiles can work their way to salvation. That's not what he's saying here. But even in their uncircumcised state, even though they're outside of the covenant community, they can learn about God, learn how to obey God and his precepts of the law. And, and what will happen then is their obedience to the precepts, obedience to follow God, will actually be a testimony against the Jews on the day of judgment. See, circumcision wasn't that magic bullet that would save a Jew. Circumcision was meant to point to an inner reality of a changed life. But they had turned it to a sort of religious, going through the motions and had emptied it of all of its meaning. Baptism is our sign today of a changed life. Baptism is only a sign and symbol of an inward reality of a changed life. Baptism doesn't save. Baptism only shows others and ourselves that we're changed in choosing to follow Jesus Christ instead of the world, and yet, Baptism is used in the same way. If you talk to an unbeliever at work or in your neighborhood and they say, yeah, I, I did. I went to church when I was a kid. Went to VBS a couple times. You know, I, I, I raised my hand. I went forward. I was baptized. So I'm good. You're using the same argument the Jews are here about circumcision. That somehow you think this act this thing you accomplish brings salvation, but it has no saving merit. See, circumcision was meant to signify the covenant between Abraham and God, and it involved a commitment to obedience of God's word. 
that obedience only springs up from faith. Circumcision was always connected with the obligation to obey God and His Word through faith. But Jews here had fallen away from the true belief in God and had made this this empty religious practice, void of any real meaning. And Paul, what Paul is going to do is he's going to wipe it away. Verse 27, I want to come back to this just for a moment. That would have been a shock to them again, okay? If you remember chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, the Jews probably stand up and, and applaud in the letter reading, right? The world is bad. We're great. And chapter 2 starts, and they're like, oh, I better sit down. And it, it'd be a shock to them to hear that their circumcision would be of no value. Yo, that hurt. It did, had value without faith and obedience. In fact, the obedient Gentiles will sit in judgment over the disobedient Jews. This doesn't mean they'll actually sit in the judge's seat, I don't think, but that their obedience to God will be seen as a witness, be called on to prove yet again that the Jews failed to trust in God and His Word. And this would have infuriated any nominal Jew at that time. The thought that a Gentile's life of obedience would be used as material witness against them was unthinkable. The same was said of Queen Sheba in Matthew 12 and the the Ninevites. Do you remember that in Matthew? Where Jesus gets up and says, their response to God will be used as judgment against you, the Pharisees. The Gentile convert will condemn the Jewish unbeliever despite their privileges because the Jews held on to their stubborn hearts. See, what we learn from this, God chooses whom He will to save. That's what makes God, God. Do we understand the purpose of the law? You know, Paul has continued to talk about obeying the law and there's this tension, at least of I, I have felt preaching through this, that when we talk about this or we teach on this, we, we, that the fear is, and I'll just be honest, the fear I get down from the pulpit is like that, that people walk away from a service thinking, man, if I only do more, if I only just obey better, that I could be accepted by God. And I have to repent of that and ask God to work in my heart, but pray that that's not what comes away from us as a congregation. That is not faithful to the text. That's not what God's Word says. I pray that your response in the midst of this, in this chapter, has not been that you just must obey better. See, in the Old Covenant, the the sacrificial system had been given so that when people broke the law, they could find forgiveness. And I was reminded this week through our staff conversation of the text, by the way, it was just Really enjoyable, Trevor, wasn't it, Zach, to talk through this text? You can imagine three guys talking through circumcision for an hour. But I was reminded of this tension, this tension of the fact that, that it's there in Scripture, that we're, we're, we're fully saved in the grace of God, and yet we're called to obey. And I need to keep, continue to hold that tension, because it's good for us to hold that tension. And we obey God out of love for Him, not to earn his love for us. 
Paul says neither the law nor circumcision can bring salvation because no one can obey perfectly. It's only through faith in Christ that there's sufficient basis for salvation. He later says in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the question is, isn't whether the law is good or bad. The question is, is the law inside of you or outside of you? Has the law, has God's word brought you to Jesus Christ to show you your need of him? And this passage, I hope, can clear our understanding of the purpose of law. To obey the law and to obey the law meant, meant to be converted, to receive the gifts of the Spirit. New life. They do not, though, promote sinless perfection, but it brings about authentic Christianity because the, the Spirit has given us life. I wonder how you're thinking through all of this, friends. Just plopped into this service after being out in the world. Uh, raise your hand if you talked about circumcision this week. Come on, Trevor, raise your hand. Everyone else, you're just plopped in here. But really, this cultural adaptation, the cultural religion. I mean, you know, I, I wonder for most Americans who've been around the church or religion most of their life, it can be easy, as I said earlier, to trust in prior faith or, or prior works of obedience. See, it's, it's very easy in America right now to trust in Christianity rather than in Christ. And external Christianity, that never really saves a person. A religion of doing rather than being is a dead religion, a dead orthodoxy. And it further separates a person from God. Orthodoxy, I said that. It's a practice of doctrine. Doing what you say you believe. And when we trust in Christianity and not in Christ, it's a dead orthodoxy. Someone who practices or does the doctrines of the Bible as it reads and just does it outwardly to, to gain something from God, but there's no internal change, well, they're still spiritually dead. Dead orthodoxy can make a church into a religious facade for people who think they're Christians but have never been radically transformed by the Word and the work of God. And they go to church every week to be reassured that everything's okay with God when in fact they're headed to hell, separated from Him. And I don't want that for you, friends. So I strive to preach the gospel to myself and to you each Sunday. The last thing you need this Sunday is to be confirmed in a relationship that you think you have with God, when in reality you don't know him at all. You know, dead orthodoxy has been one of Paul's point here in this second half of the chapter two. That's why he asks earlier, do you have a theoretical stance towards the word of God? You, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
So you, you love the Bible and the concepts of the Bible and the truth, but you don't allow yourself to come under the authority of the Bible and truth. You, you perhaps like to talk about theology and read lots of books, but you seldom want theology to talk about your life and how you're obeying the truth. That's a dead orthodoxy. Or maybe a superiority over others. He says, you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. See, moralists are often cold to those that are struggling to learn and grow and obey God. Or even outright hypocrisy that we talked about. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? See, each one of these can be true of us if our faith is non-existent in God and we're just acting out Christianity. The only antidote to a dead orthodoxy is continued faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. It's reminding ourselves of the gospel. That's where our hope lies. Trusting in him alone to cleanse us of our unrighteousness and rebellion wipes out a dead orthodoxy, a dead religion. And so what you need most this morning is to repent of your sins of trusting in yourself and in your work to try to pull yourself up and will yourself to obedience. And you need to trust in Christ alone. And you need to be humbled to do that. You see, your striving to earn Christ's love is leading you away from him. And Christ is patient with you. He's not upset. He's not frustrated. He's not tapping his toes, just saying, get your act together. But he's calling us to himself. So stop earning. Stop trying to to think that you can will your way back to Christ. But repent of your sins of trusting yourself, trusting your work, and trust in him alone. Rely on him alone. And he will save you. Well, Paul moves from answering the question of their circumcision of the flesh and what it means to what it's really required now to be a Christian. Really, for him in this context, chapter 2 is writing to the Rome, he's, he's going to answer the question, what, what makes someone a Jew? So that's question number 2. Verse 28, look there. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know, as humans, we are prone to look at the outside, to look out just the things we can observe. We've seen this back in 1 Samuel 16, when God had chosen David to replace Saul. King Saul had, had, the, had all of the outward appearance. Right? You remember that way back when? You know, he was, he was the guy. Like, he was tall, stature, masculine. He was going to be the kingly-looking king that they wanted. And they wanted a king. Right? God's people wanted a king because everyone else had a king and thought, this is the way to do it. And so that's who they selected, Saul. And Saul mis- uh, failed miserably. 
And when Samuel was commanded by God to choose another, what, what did Samuel do? He looked for the same. And, and the Lord speaks to him, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on, the, on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, God has always been more interested in the heart. John Stott, writing about this passage, said, human beings are comfortable with what is outward, visible, material, and superficial. What matters to God is a deep, inward, secret work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Only faith in Jesus Christ can bring salvation. Someone cannot be made right with God merely possessing the covenant signs of law and circumcision. He's saying that the externals of this practice are not enough. That's what makes a false Jew. A false Jew, they're characterized by the outward performance, physical circumcision only, according to the written code. And essentially, they they receive praise from from man. And, And most Jews at that time fell into this category. And yet they were true Jews, he says. They are characterized by an inward circumcision of the heart, according to the Spirit, and receive praise from God. See, the heart, the heart is what God is most interested in. The heart is the very center of a person, right? When we use this term, even in our world today, we use the word heart, we're talking about that thing that truly defines us. It's the heart of the matter, we say the heart of all things, the very center of us, the very center of a subject. And so when Paul tells us that, that a true Jew is one that is circumcised, circumcision, which is a matter of the heart, he's saying that our center needs to be cut off from ourselves, from the world, from the flesh, and our needs and our wants. We need to be set apart for God, cut off from the flesh, cut off from the world, for God alone. See, that's the main idea of the sermon. Salvation happens in a circumcised heart, not in any cultural religious practice. And this would have been a, a new concept for the people. And yet it wasn't a new concept if they had actually read their Bible. The idea of this occurs regularly throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It had been a truth that would be shared over with God's people, but they, they choose to not listen. They choose stubbornness and disobey. And there was this constant reminder for God's people to circumcise their hearts in response to God. Moses would go up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, right? And what were the people doing at the bottom of the mountain? They're they're making a calf. I got to have what I want. And they make a calf to worship. Their stubbornness to God and his word was a continued issue. And so God would continue to come with patience and love and correct them. In Jeremiah 4, 4, again, another response. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because the evil of your deeds. Do you hear the compassion of God in that? 
or you just think that God is just scary. He's warning them. That's, that is compassion, friends. You need to respond rightly to me, or here's what's going to happen. And they would profess with their mouths that they were going to obey God, but with their hearts and actions, they showed that they didn't want anything to do with him. And yet God, we read this on the outside, we think, God, you, why did you continue to endure with these people? But he's so full of love and patience and steadfast love, he would send prophets to them to call their hearts back to him because he was not interested in their outward performance. He was always interested in their heart. What Paul has been driving at this whole chapter is for them to stop trying to earn God's favor through work, through this cultural obedience, and to trust in Christ alone. Don't you see the patience of God with the Jews here and Paul's word to them? God is going to look at the heart, friends. Consider your heart. That's the main point. That's what they should be concerned with most. You can come with all sorts of outward signs of obedience and good works, but if there is no circumcision of the heart, none of it will matter. And see, here Paul, at the very end, you need to understand this, Paul is moving past his contemporaries that, that physical circumcision is expendable. He's replacing this physical right of circumcision. He's not simply coming along and complimenting it. No, he's removing it. It is not necessary. Circumcision means nothing now since Christ has come to fulfill the law and to die on the cross for sinners. It's not circumcision plus something else. It's not do this work plus Jesus Christ. It's only Jesus Christ. And what matters now is a circumcised heart, not by, by happening by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit, by God's Spirit. Salvation comes by God. He is the one who saves he will write this in Romans 7. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we will serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of tr- the written code. See, a circumcised heart is one spiritually melt- melted and, and softened, being made new with God. And how do we know if we have circumcised hearts? Perhaps that's the question you have. Well, we want to be with God's people in worship. That's one way. If you continually don't want to gather with people, with God's people to worship, friend, you need to be concerned over your spiritual state. God's people will not forsake the gathering together to worship him. It also means that we have a regular prayer life, not out of duty, but out of love for God. And we talk with him because we desire his presence in our lives and his goodness and his nearness. And that doesn't mean that we don't have seasons and times of distance and lovelessness towards him. It's very natural for us as, as fallen humans. But, it, but, but prayer should be the greatest pattern of our lives and, and, and happening and how God gives us grace in that. But if it's neglected for years and decades, we should be concerned. 
and we give of ourselves to God in relationships and in service and with our monies because we recognize our life is not about ourselves, but it's for him and his glory. And we do all this not to earn God's favor, simply because we love him and we want to be with him. Does that make sense? Or are you still struggling? You know, if I, if I relate to my wife and say to her, I want to spend time with you so that you like me, there's a problem. I, I, I want to earn your love, so I'm going to do these things for you. There's an issue in our relationship. Now, I seek to spend time with my wife, to serve her, to listen, to give, to talk, simply because I love her. And that's what a relationship looks like. That's what your relationships should look like. And so it's the same for us as Christians in our relationship to God. So, we've come to the end. Where is hope? How do we make sense of five verses about circumcision? By the way, parents, you're going to have a lovely lunchtime. I'll pray for you in your discussions. What was circumcision a sign of? Why did God require Abraham to be circumcised? What was the symbol? What did it mean? God doesn't do things on accident. God is not like us thinking, oh, I'm not sure what I'll do. I'll do this. He's always, he always has meaning. He always has purpose. See, in the Old Testament, you didn't just sign your name to an agreement, but you acted out the curse if you broke that agreement, if you broke that covenant. And circumcision, and I don't want you to think about this too long, friends, is a cutting off in a very intimate, personal, tender way of ourselves. So what God was saying to Abraham was, if you want to be in a relationship with me, you need to be circumcised as a sign for yourself and to others that if you break the covenant, you'll be cut off completely. Cut off from others, cut off from life, cut off from me. And you will experience full circumcision if you walk away. But here's the thing. No one could keep the covenant. No one could obey the law perfectly. No one was blameless. No one was able to fulfill all that the law required. No one. So what is God doing? How is God going to have any people at all if, if no one could fully obey, if no one could fulfill the covenant, if no one could do what he asked, how would God have anyone left? How would he have a people? That's a great question. Colossians 2.11, Paul writes, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. 
On the cross, Jesus was cut off. That's why he calls it the circumcision of Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't see you. I can't feel you. You're not with me. In that moment, Jesus Christ was cut off from God. Isaiah 53 says that he was cut off from the land of the living. Why? See, Jesus was getting what circumcision represented. He was being cut off. He was going under the knife, and it was bloody and violent and gruesome. And he was receiving the curse that we all deserve because we couldn't stand in the judgment. Because we can't stand before the law. But that's not all. It doesn't just say he was circumcised on the cross. It says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He says, because the Gentiles... He says this because the Gentiles were, weren't circumcised. He says, you have a new heart. You have new life. Because you're circumcised with Christ. What that means now is that it means you stand in him in this way because of what he's accomplished for you. See, circumcision has lots of meaning. Jesus Christ was cut off from God the Father for you, friend. You know, something else I thought of this week, when you read the law and you read all the imperatives in Scripture and when you're honest with yourself, when you're reading it, you say to yourself, who could really do this? Who could do all this? And who is he talking about? Friends, I have news. It's not you, and it's not me. It's Jesus. See, that Sunday school answer does come in handy. It's him. That's who he's talking about. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to live in obedience to God's word. Don't come away that way. But we strive knowing that it's all pointless unless we're found to be living in Jesus Christ. And so when you read that, when you read the law, when you read the imperatives in Scripture and you come away, don't be crushed under the weight of that. Instead, see the beauty of Jesus Christ. See, when you believe in Jesus and you give yourself to him, all of yourself, then all your sins, all your attempts to earn salvation for yourself are transferred to him. And he was cut off for you. And all the beauty of his perfect law-keeping, all the beauty of his life is transferred to you, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, friends. So we can rejoice of what Christ has done for us. So what makes someone a Jew? Someone who has a circumcised heart. 
The true Jew and the true circumcision are invisible characteristics, gifts of the Holy Spirit, not of the Mosaic law. See, the end of the chapter is clear. The Jews have no excuse. We need to be clear about this. They are in the same boat as the rest of humanity, facing the wrath of God, both now and in the day of judgment. And they need to repent of their sins, just like us, and turn to God in faith. And there is no other way of salvation for the Jew. And there's no other way for ever anyone here on earth. Paul is saying the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come the same way. He ends here at the very end. His praise is not from man, but from God. That's the end. That's the goal of the Christian life, friends. We don't live the Christian life in obedience to God for praise of men. We live for God's glory and his alone. And our praise is from God, not from man. So let us continue to live for him and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for you and your word. And we are aware this morning that we're all failures in many ways in and of ourselves. And yet you sent your son to come and live and die for us. To be circumcised, to be cut off from the Father for our salvation. And we praise you, God. You are generous and kind and faithful and loving. And we don't deserve your love, but we're thankful for it. As we head into a week set aside by our country to recall and give thanks, we remember our greatest gift, Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. So would you help us to live for you, to die to ourselves this week and to serve others humbly and to love you with all that we have for your honor and glory, we pray. Amen.